communication has to go way up and gratitude has to go way up. Communication, because if you have a, a, a gap in communication, if there's silence, you know what that silence, you know what that gap gets filled with? Rumor, innuendo, and fear. <laughs> None of those are productive. If I'm engaging with you and we're in constant communication, and I'm constant, I don't mean, you know, five hours a day, every day. It's I'm checking in with you a couple times a week. How are you doing today? How can I help? What do you think? That's That's been the shift. And the good leaders have made that pivot and get it. And those leaders there say, hey, look, it's a nice to have, not a must have. They miss it. And they start to lose people's motivation, engagement, and more than anything, start to lose their trust. You are listening to The Real Leaders Podcast, where leaders keep it real. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. And those wise words come from Real Leaders, top 50 keynote speaker, best-selling author, and the co-founder of CultureWorks, Chester Elton, who claims that good leaders get gratitude. And on today's episode, Elton shares prolific examples of business leaders who credit culture change for their resilience, how work balance and work harmony defer, and the common ingredients for an engaged workforce. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for the real Chester Elton. Enjoy. Okay, there we go. Take a deep breath. Here we go. Going live in five, four, three. It's still loading. Three, a long three, two, and one. And welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Here today to talk about culture and leadership is number one leadership bestselling author and the apostle of appreciation is Mr. <laughs> Chester Elton. Chester, thanks for being with us today. Uh, delighted to be on the show. Thanks for asking. Of course, of course. So the Apostle of Appreciation, how, how does one get that nickname and what got you interested into uh, leadership? Well, you've got to know royalty in England. There's a whole process. It's uh... Right, yeah, that's that's what I hear. <laughs> I'm kidding. So uh, Adrian Gostick is my co-author and years ago we wrote a book called The Carrot Principle, hence why orange is our favorite color and carrot is our mascot. Love it. And the Toronto Globe and Mail, which is Canada's largest newspaper, and it was dear to us because Adrian and I both grew up in Canada. As they reviewed the book, they said, Gossick and Elton are the apostles of appreciation. And we liked it so much, we kept it. In fact, you'll get a kick out of this. Over the years, we've picked up other nicknames. Like we worked for DHL in Bonn, Germany. They called us the Deacons of Dankeschön, the Ministers of Motivation, the High Priests of Praise, even the Dalai Lamas of Workplace Traumas, which I thought was very clever. But the one that stuck was the Apostles of Appreciation. So that's why we go well, by, you know, with that. You know what they say, though. You can't choose the nickname. The nickname chooses you. Exactly. Just ask The Rock. That's right. That's right. So appreciation. Why is appreciation so important, uh, important in today's uh, leadership culture? You know, it's, it's really interesting, and I, and I love your take on, on real leaders. You know, for, for 20 years, Adrian and I have studied culture. And, of course, you can't study culture without studying leaders, teams, and so on. And we've got a database of over a million engagement surveys, 80,000 of our own motivators assessments that we apply. And I will tell you this. Every great leader 
every great culture we ever studied, there was always this thread of appreciation and gratitude. You know, the leaders were appreciative of the people that worked with and for them. They, they, they were grateful for their customers. They gave back to their communities. There was a certain humility there and, and, and a sense of gratitude that really made that culture work. Attracted good people, kept good people, and produced tremendous results. In fact, the, uh, our latest book, which is Leading with Gratitude, is is kind of the carrot principle taken to the next level. Carrot principle was a lot about the ceremony, the symbols, and so on, which are really important. Gratitude is that emotional connection to work. And so the, the longer we've been doing this, the more evident it was to us that if you want to be a truly extraordinary leader and you want to build a culture where people feel safe to innovate and work hard and bring their best selves to work every day, you have to know how to lead with gratitude. How does one practice gratitude? Every day. <laughs> Just a little bit every day. You know, as we did our research and we delved into all the numbers, it was really interesting that two words really popped out to me that you have to be intentional about leading with gratitude and you have to be disciplined. So we, we said, look, there's the eight best practices on how to lead with gratitude. And there's seeing and then expressing so one of the things that, and we're both executive coaches as well. So as we coach executives, one of the key areas in leading with gratitude is developing an, uh, an attitude of assuming positive intent about your people. Now, often as leaders, we think if we lead by fear, we're going to get those quick hits and you can get short-term results leading with fear. You really want long-term results. You need to believe that people come to work every day to do a good job. And in trying to do that good job, they're going to make mistakes. And you know what? That's okay. We can fix the mistake. We can move on. Assuming that positive intent goes a long way to creating a culture of gratitude. And then when people really do, you know, perform and, and give their best effort or, or dealt with uh, difficult situations, how do you express that in a way that's meaningful? Hmm. Th th does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So let's take an example then. So before uh, COVID hit, you know, let's just say a lot of our businesses were doing very well. Uh, we can say we're going to practice gratitude and we're going to be very appreciative for everything that happens to us. But when something like that happens, uh, what are some examples that stick out to you that maybe some leaders had that did where gratitude and appreciation really came through for their organization? Well, you know, uh, particularly with COVID, you know, all of a sudden you had all these people working from home and the dynamic was so different, right? Maybe they're homeschooling their kids or they're taking care of an aged parent who's at risk or, or whatever. So now the whole dynamic of I've got the commute to work to kind of figure things out, lay out my day. I've got my commute coming back to maybe decompress. I can pull people into my office quickly. We can call a quick meeting and gather people. Together. All that, all that's gone away. And now I'm at home, I'm disconnected from my work. The really good leaders said, you know what? I've got to make sure I'm touching base with my people on a regular basis. So instead of just maybe, look, I was out for coffee and I got an extra one for you or whatever, right? Or, hey, we're, we're going to wrap up a little early. Let's all go to the bar for, you know, for a quick hit. They, 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 they made sure that they were touching base with their people, maybe as a group, you know, on a, on a video chat. More importantly, one-on-one. -on -one. And they're asking really simple questions. How are you doing today? Because today could be a lot different than yesterday, right? Okay. Particularly if you get kids at home, right? How can I help and listen? And then one of the questions I really like is, hey, what do you think? 
Like, what do you think about what we're doing? And and what that does, and you say, well, when I think of gratitude, I think of stuff. Well, yeah, that, that can, it can be stuff. One of the best ways you can express gratitude to your people is give them your time mm. and listen to their voice and get them to, to participate. Because now I'm working from home. The worst thing that can happen to me is nobody's talking to me. Nobody's grateful for the hard work that I'm doing with all these distractions. I'm forgotten. And so we say, look, particularly the in, in COVID, communication has to go way up and gratitude has to go way up. Communication, because if you have a, a gap in communication, if there's silence, you know what that silence, you know what that gap gets filled with? Rumor, innuendo, and fear. Mm. <laughs> None of those are productive. If I'm engaging with you and we're in constant communication, and I'm constant, I don't mean, you know, five hours a day, every day. It's I'm checking in with you a couple of times a week. How are you doing today? How can I help? What do you think? That's That's been the shift. And the good leaders have made that pivot and get it. And those leaders are saying, hey, look, it's a nice to have, not a must have. They miss it. And they start to lose people's motivation, engagement, and more than anything, start to lose their trust. So in terms of engagement and communication with COVID now, working virtually, what are some effective tools that you've seen from leaders who are now uh, trying to engage their their employees much better uh, through this crisis virtually. You know, it's going to sound really old school because, you know, well, let's go video chat. Well, guess what? I, I've had enough video chats today, sure. <laughs> right? Everybody's getting a little zoomed out, as they say. Uh, old school, you know what? A handwritten note goes a long way. You take the time, you write it down, you put a stamp on it. Let's face it, your mail is not that interesting these days, right? <laughs> Whatever you get, it's like catalogs and, and maybe you still get some bills. A thoughtful handwritten note that you've taken the time shows up. It's always timely because I take the time to read it when I'm not busy. Um, I think Amazon is a great friend for a lot of managers. I love random acts of kindness. Mm. Know your people well enough that, hey, if they've got some kids at homes and stuff, why don't you put together a little treat basket? Or, you know, maybe they're big movie buffs or something. You send them a little, you know, a little online Netflix, whatever, so they can watch some movies. I mean, know your people well enough that you can make that random act of kindness or that little expression of gratitude really meaningful. And, and I want to illustrate it by the story we used in the book. So when Adrian and I first started to work together, we worked for a bigger company and we'd written our first book on recognition, Managing with Carrots. Great title, right? So I said to our CEO, I said, now I grew up in sales. I said, hey, we got to figure out a way to recognize Adrian. So at the big annual sales meeting here, let's, you know, people come from all over the country. Let's highlight Adrian and let's present him with a watch. And Men in Black was the movie. And so we got this cool, you know, the Delta watch. It was very cool. Hamilton, right? I didn't understand what Adrian's key motivators were, right? Adrian, and, and I said, well, by the way, let's get him a watch because I noticed he doesn't wear one. So he clearly needs one, right? Right, clearly. His key motivators were family, interesting work, leave me alone, <laughs> you know? And the reason he doesn't wear watches because he hates watches, mm. right? So what I had done is I had projected what I love to do. I love to go to events. I love meeting new people. I love watches, right? So it was really interesting that he got this beautiful watch in front of a bunch of people he didn't know, didn't care to know, in an evening that he'd rather be home with his family. 
And so what I'm saying is, is if you want a mint condition, men in black, Hamilton watch, Adrian's got it. Right. He's got it. He's not using it. <laughs> so again, you know, these little things, do you know your people well enough? Do you know how to express that gratitude in a way that's meaningful? Handwritten notes, little packages in the mail. I love the team leaders that they find out that one of the things their team used to like to do was go out for pizza. So this was a great leader. And when, you know what she did? She sent a pizza to everybody's house Friday night. She said, by the way, Friday with your family, dinner's on me. It'll be a surprise. Wait for the doorbell to ring. Mm. It didn't cost a lot of money. And yet, really, you think those people remember it? Guarantee it. Absolutely. So, Chester, when you're doing this research, what did you seek out to find? What questions were you asking? And what were some of the revelations that you found from uh, all these results? It's a great question. So we, we, we asked leaders, we said, look, do you think on average you are above average in expressions of appreciation and gratitude? Almost 70% said, absolutely. I love doing stuff for my people and they love me, right? Mm. Then we asked their direct reports the same question. Only 23% agreed. So we call that the gratitude gap. The gap. And we looked at engagement surveys. Almost always, I feel appreciated for my work was near the bottom. So we took that and we said, okay, let's take a look at some extraordinary leaders that we know whose organizations have produced ridiculous results. And let's find some, let's spend some time with them, let's interview them, and let's see what it is that makes their organization so extraordinary. So one of them was Gary Ridge at WD40. Now, nobody leaves home with a, uh, without a kid, right? Like, I know you've got a can of WD40. Absolutely, here. downstairs. So here's, here's your skill testing question. What does WD40 stand for? You, you know? know, I've been told it and I'm going to botch it. No, don't even ask me right now. It's embarrassing. Water displacement, 40th formula. The 40th time they've tried it, right? That's exactly. Right. Uh, something like that. So Gary Ridge, and by the way, I want to plug his book, uh, Tribal Culture. It's just, it's, it's 10 bucks on Amazon. It's, it's a brilliant. Yeah, t- tell me about him. I heard he's great. Oh yeah, Gary, G-A-R-R-Y. He's a delightful Aussie living in San Diego. He's the CEO of WD-40. Since he t- When he took over WD-40, they were about a $250 million company, right. uh, basically in the US. Uh, now in 2020, they're a $2.5 billion company and they're 179 countries. So he talks about tribal culture. So where WD-40 comes in t- into play is... In their culture, understand this, there are no mistakes. There are only learning moments. Mm. So when you want to innovate and create new products and do something, you're going to make mistakes. I mean, that's baked into innovation, right? You're going to make mistakes. If you don't feel safe at work and you make a mistake, you hide it. If you're in a healthy culture like WG40, you make a mistake. You bring everybody in and say, by the way, this is my mistake. How do we fix it? And that tribal culture, he says, you know, Teammates didn't work for me, associates, you know, employees. A tribe is different. A tribe, you hunt together, you eat together, you defend each other, and you celebrate together. Mm. Isn't that brilliant? That's, I love that. I love that. Now, WD-40, now, I, I believe my one of my best friends is an accountant for them. So he's the one that told me about that the 40th time they did that. And now they have this IP, right? So it'll never be copied. They'll be in business now. But a lot of, we just had a, someone that worked for Kodak uh, on the on the show just an hour ago, and their Kodak moment happened to be when you know digital took them over, and they were resting on their laurels. Uh, how does a company that has you know prior success not rest on their laurels 
and continue to keep up with the time in order to be relevant, whether it's through digital transformation or just with the you know social social terms and social norms. Yeah, see, that's where culture is so important, okay. that you listen to your people, right? Because as you know, who invented the digital camera? Kodak, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, Kodak, yeah. They had their Skunk Works group and they said, by the way, this is absolutely the future. And they said, yeah, but people are going to want to, you know, have real film and it's going to be higher quality and they're going to want to go and take it to a drugstore and they're going to want to wait a week before they get it or pay a little extra and get it. And, you know, mm. come on. I mean, can, can you ever imagine going back to, I'm going to shoot a bunch of pictures. I'm not going to know what they look like. Take a roll, give it to a guy, get 24 pictures back and maybe keep three. Right. <laughs> now, you know, you know, we can shoot 60 photos and delete the 58. We don't like the, the point is, is they had gotten caught up in, We've always done it this way. There's no room for innovation. And even though they came up with these really cool products, IBM invented the mouse, didn't know what to do with it. Mm. Microsoft grabbed it, Mm. you know? So you've got to have a culture where you ask for and solicit input. And that's, that's one of the seeing attributes in our book. Are you in tune? Are you walking in your people's shoes? You know, uh, are you really understanding what it is that goes into the company? See, the great thing about Gary is, is he said, look, um, we need to grow. What would it take to get into Thailand? What would it take to get into India? Let's solve this problem together. There are no mistakes. There are only learning moments. And they talk about their company as being, we're not a, a lubricant company. Mm. We're a company that creates memories, lasting memories for people. Mm. Now you might say, look, it's a lubricant. <laughs> Who are you kidding? Let me tell you a quick story. And and, and by the way, a, a great blog on LinkedIn that Gary put up, Lessons I've Learned During COVID. Really, really brilliant read. And, and he said, one of the guys that's working for me, works for WD-40, COVID, he's got a little more time on his hands, now the commute, wanted to get back into cycling. So he goes to the garage, he dusts off his bike, and he's got to do some maintenance. So he grabs his young daughter. He says, come on, let's go down to the hardware store and let's get a, a can of multi-purpose WD-40, you know, for the, for the bicycle chain. So she's like, yeah, okay, dad. So they're running an errand, right? So he comes back and they got the bike all set up. And he says, so do you know what we're doing here, honey? She said, yeah, we're greasing your bicycle chain. He said, no, no, we're creating a lasting memory. And here's how we're going to do it takes the cloth, sprays the WD-40 on the cloth, and says, smell that. And it's got a very distinctive smell, as you know. Smell that. We're going to clean this chain, and it's time for you and me just to spend some time together. Daddy-daughter time. And you know what? Every time you smell that, you're going to remember ah. this moment. Ah. How good. And you go, it's not a lubricant anymore, is it? It's not. It's not. But that's also the same thing that Kodak tried to rest on was a Kodak moment. We create moments. We're not a digital company. They had beef with the digital company. Now, Kodak, also a very large organization. Now, he was saying we had a a lot of overhead. Uh, They invested $5 billion into chemicals for their development. So when the digital transformation came, they had all this overhead. They, They had a lot of naysayers. They had a lot of people that said, we're not changing. That's to me, culture, but to him, he said it was more just the industry is changing. 
How do you see that? And what are some things that maybe some differences from leading with a large corporation versus a small business? Well, a $250 million company isn't that small. And certainly $2.5 billion is, is, is marketable. The reason I was shaking your head while you were saying all, yeah. is I want to I, I share with you a phrase that my father made me memorize when I was a kid. This is, this is advice from the grave from John Dalton Elton. He'd say, you know what, Chess? Excuses, even when valid, are never impressive. Mm. So, yeah, listen, uh, in hindsight, Kodak could make all the excuses, $5 billion in chemicals, a new research facility for better paper, you know, competing with Fuji. And, yeah, I get it. Let me give you an example of the Ford Motor Company. So Alan Mulally was one of the guys we got to interview. Now, in the last recession, Ford, General Motors, and Chrysler, you remember, their, their stock went to a dollar. Mm. They had to go to, to D.C., right, to Washington to plead for money. Now, General Motors and Chrysler took the money. Ford did not. Bill Ford calls up Alan Mulally, who's at Boeing at the time, and, and saved Boeing you know, from, from their catastrophic failures and said, come on to, to, to Ford. We got to turn this thing around. Alan takes the job. Big company, lots of overhead. At the time, all kinds of brands. You might remember they owned Jaguar, Saab, Volvo, Range Rover, all these different brands. He comes in, he says, look, you don't, you don't have a product problem. You've got a culture problem. You've got a people problem. Now, a lot of people say, yeah, lead with gratitude. Nice to have soft skill. It's an absolute hard skill, and it's an absolute must-have. Here's Alan Mulally shows up, loafers, sport coat, no tie, all these uh, you know, automotive executives. Now, I lived in Detroit for a while. He slicked back hair, you know, $2,000 suits, the cufflinks, the whole bit. He comes in and starts hugging everybody. And he says, you know what? It's all about your people. You got to love them up. And he's from Indiana. You got to love them up, mm. right? Culture issue. He said, one of the guys comes up to him literally and says, Alan, I know you're in airplanes. These are cars. And I don't know if you know this, but 40,000 parts go into any car. And if they don't work, the car didn't run. Mm. Alan looks at him, smiles, he goes, you know, I was the design engineer on the 777 Boeing jet. It has four, four million parts. Right. And by the way, it flies. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the engineering part isn't going to be a problem. No excuses. The culture, the trust. So all this overhead, you know what they did? They sold off all those brands. Mm. They sold them all off. They said, look, if we're going to survive, we got to place our bet. And we're going to place our bet on the oval. And it's Ford. He was the guy that said, look, the F-150 best-selling truck in the world. He's the one that said, you know what? We're going to go to an aluminum frame. He re-engineered everything. They, they took all that cash. They placed their bet and they said, look, we got to trust each other. We got to work through the problems. This is who we are. We are Ford. Mm. We're going to build great cars that people want with technology at a, at, a, at a price and on and on. So they can see America, right? That was the old Ford slogan from, from years ago from Henry Ford. And they did it. And he increased their stock by 1,800%. Now, when your stock's at a dollar, that's not too hard to do. Right? No. The fact is, is he turned it around. They became profitable again. And yet after he left, very quickly slipped back into their own well, old habit. It seems like he also took ownership you know, by not accepting the money, took accountability. Uh, is that something you teach as well? And how important is ownership in an organization? Accountability is key. Again, hard skill, 
must have. Nobody is more demanding than Alan Mulally. He holds his people accountable like you can't believe, mm. you know, big charts, red, yellow, green, and so on. And yet he says, if in a crisis, when you're going through hardships, if you withhold gratitude, you're shooting yourself in the foot. He had this philosophy of look for small wins, celebrate those small wins, get momentum. One of the things he did, he did right from the get-go, he reinvigorated the Taurus car. And so they re-engineered it. They relaunched it. They're at the big auto show in Detroit, right? He's the new CEO. Spotlights are on. He comes out. There's the Ford Taurus gleaming, you know, every, every inch has been polished. He says, I'm going to show you the new Ford Taurus. Isn't it beautiful? Look at that shine. Who shined up that car? Three maintenance guys are off to the side. Come on out. Mm. Come on out. The maintenance guys. He says, give them a big round of applause. That car doesn't look that good without these three guys here. What kind of message do you think that sends? Everybody matters. Right. Everybody matters every day. And when you get everybody buying in and you celebrate those small wins along the way and you build that momentum, you can do remarkable things. Accountability and gratitude go hand in hand. Do you think that's what attracts employees to a company like that in the first place over its competitors? Yep. (laughs) I mean, literally no doubt about it. Why wouldn't you want to go to a place where you're valued and appreciated and celebrated, where when you make a mistake, you're still safe and you can solve that problem and move on? Hubert Jolie, who we interviewed for the book, took Best Buy from a billion dollar deficit to a billion dollar surplus. Said, how did you do it? He said, we made work meaningful. Mm. And he said, I may be naive. I just assume people come to work wanting to do a good job. Mm. And we celebrate that. So uh, are we investing in our employees as much as we should be? And what do you see in the field today in terms of most leaders and and where the the money is directed to in terms of, let's say, um, talent and acquisition, uh, employee (laughs) engagement, things like this? You know, the, the, the short answer is no, no, we're not. Okay. And let me tell you why that is folly. Yeah. Real, real case study. You ever been to a Texas Roadhouse restaurant? No, I haven't. I have heard the story about them, though, in this COVID. They're amazing. You yep. go in at the party, it's peanuts on the floor, it's ice cold beer and margaritas, it's hand cut steaks and fresh baked uh, rolls, right? You can smell it as Love you walk it. in. Love and it is more fun than you should be allowed. So, almost 80,000 employees, 600 restaurants. COVID hits. Their takeaway business, about 7%. Mm. He's going to shutter all of them. Now they got to go to 100% curbside. Can you imagine? You know what the first thing he said was? Nobody's getting laid off. Right. Yep. As long as I'm CEO. Gave up his $1.3 million salary. Got all his banks all in order. Said, even if you can't come to work, we're going to pay you. Because if you work at Texas Roadhouse, you're a roadie. And that means something. Mm. And we're going to buy all the masks and gloves and goggles. We're going to protect you. And together, we're going to figure this out. Mm. And within four weeks, they were profitable. In week five and six, they were hiring people. Do you know that almost 8 million, uh, 8 million workers in the restaurant industry lost their jobs within three to four weeks when COVID hit? Tragedy, yep. Not one of them worked for Texas Rodas. And here's why. He invests in his people. They love them. They love Kent. They love the brand. They would not let their communities down. The order of importance is roadies, customers, community. Roadies, customers, community. Take care of your roadies. Roadies, take care of your customers. And because we're, we're doing well, 
we can take care of our community. They came up with some bizarre ideas. They've got all these hand-cut steaks. You might remember there was a time when there was kind of a meat shortage. He said, you know what? One of his guys in North Carolina said, you know what? Let's do a farmer's market on the weekend. We'll sell them our beautiful hand-cut steaks curb to grill. Mm. There were people that waited in line for four hours to buy those steaks. It wasn't just the best one day, you know, uh, sales uh, for that store. It was the it was the best one day sales number in the entire history of Texas Roadhouse. And it was a guy that was thinking outside the box. Now, did all their ideas work? No, it's OK. Ken says, when things get tough, I call my crazies. <laughs> I call my crazies. So you call you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we we were documenting all this, Adrian and I. It was it was so much fun. And you know what they did? They've got this. Um, they call it the the uh, the rally alley. At the beginning of every day, they get everybody and they said, "Okay, we're Texas Roadhouse, hand cut steaks, fresh baked bread, like heaped up." You know, we got we got these family packs. We've got it. We're going to feed our community. We're going to keep things running, and and we're not going to let it get to us. Hey, and they call out Jack, and they call out Susan, and they call out Malik, and whatever they're doing. And they they hit the curb running, and at the end of the day, they do, they do the same thing. I have never seen a company that celebrates more than Texas Rodas, and they are without question the gold standard in the restaurant industry. Why do you think there is such a knee jerk reaction among the business community to cut and assume that cutting employees is going to lead to growth? It's the first thing they do, right? Oh, times are hard. Well, because you th- that's the easiest thing to do, right? It's headcount. It's headcount. You know, well, let's close half our stores, lay off half our people and regroup. Yeah, that, you know, short term. We'll, we'll bring you back when we can. Hmm. Right. <laughs> Not interested, right? So I think it starts way back, right? Kent had been doing this for 20 years. You know, he built that trust over 20 years. He made sure that they were in a financial situation so that when hard times hit, because they always do, that they would be in a position to survive. You know, when money's cheap and everybody's borrowing and expanding. Yeah, short term, that's great. Do you have the reserves? Because if you don't, what you're telling people is you really don't care about your place. Hmm. You didn't put away for hard times. And the companies that do... And Texas Roadhouse is one, and there are many examples. Texas Roadhouse is one. You can't. You think they're coming back? You think they're working hard? You think they're they're making that experience at Texas Roadhouse world class? Their motto is legendary food, legendary service. Hmm. That's it. And, and it's still fun. Now it's a party in the parking lot, right? Exactly, exactly. So I think you touched on another point, and you were talking about the community, like how Texas Roadhouse is investing into the community. They are a part of the community now, and that's why people are going back. This long-term thinking, this stakeholder approach versus shareholder approach, is this something that you see business owners adopting in today's day and age? And maybe a few examples that could help our audience out uh, to understand why this is important during a time like a recession. Yeah, well, listen, um, people, even with unemployment where it is, people have options. Good people always have options. And they're going to go where? They're going to feel valued that they can grow and develop. You know, it was really interesting. We were at a conference. This is some years ago now. And uh, they were asking their employees, what do you expect of your manager? And one of the most poignant answers, and I think it's, it's more true now than ever, is they said, I don't want a manager that just makes me a more efficient worker or a better worker. I want a manager that makes me a better person. Mm. 
So this long-term yeah. strategy says, look, I'm going to invest in you. And there's no more nine to five. Everybody's got a smartphone. It's all, you know, 24 seven, right? So I'm going to invest in you as a person. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to put you in a position where you can grow and develop. And by investing in you and caring about you, how can I not care about the organization and my immediate supervisor? And does that ripple to the customer every time? And yes, there still are a lot of companies that don't get it. They're very transactional. And people work there. And if that's your nature and that's what motivates you, that really work is work and life is life and never the twain shall meet. And I don't have to be passionate about my work. I just need to make sure my check clears. But you'll never be world class. I don't think you'll ever build you know, a monument that this is how you do it. Mm. And you can maybe get by. Fine. You want to build something special? You want to build it for the long term? Invest in your people. Know your people. Care about your people. Put aside money for hard times. It's uh, not that hard. Chester, one of the jobs I, I got coming out of college was uh, with Wyndham Hotels. And I turned it down, but I, I was really interested in Wyndham. Now, they are an industry that has just been demolished by COVID. There's no travel anymore. Uh, right. Not to say they didn't care about me as a person. I thought they were great people and they're speaking with me on the phones when they took me at the dinner, wine and dine me, things like that. Uh, is that an excuse now? Would you say that's an excuse? How do you speak with an employee that you know you're not going to be able to have the capital or the funds um, to support them anymore? What type of conversation would a leader have with an employee that they unfortunately do actually have to cut? Or do you say, no, you don't have to cut them at all? Well, here's here's the point. I mean, there are devastating circumstances, right? I'll relate to you a wonderful story about Doria Camaraza. Doria runs the call centers for American Express down in Florida. And there were some severe cutbacks one year. Here's the point you said, how do you tell a manager, how does that conversation go? Well, first, have the conversation. So often there is no conversation. Mm. You get escorted out the building or, right. you know, if you work in government, you might get tweeted that you no longer have a job, right? So the point is, have the conversation. Be open and honest. You know, Doria tells the story. She said, you know, we'd let three people go. And it was it was heartbreaking for me. We tried to look for other areas of the organization. It just didn't work. These were the cutbacks. And I said, I sat down with every one of them. And I said, look, it breaks my heart to let you go. Here's the situation. We tried everything we could. Now, what good organizations do as well is they say, here's what we're going to do for you to help you transition. You know, we're going to give you an excellent recommendation. We've got some services on how to put your, you know, your CV together. Other areas that we think, you know, or other companies that we think are, are hiring and, and where you might fit. So it wasn't, look, not my fault. Cutbacks. Would love to keep. You just can't. Right. Cool, right? No. And and the thing that was wonderful about that is as hard as that was for Doria to do, and it was, everyone, everyone in this case, it was it was only three people, but this is it. In every one of the cases, they thanked her. They said, you know what? We'd love you as a leader. If other openings come up, we'd love to come back, completely understand. Thank you for the experience I've had with you. And thank you for taking the time as the head of the organization to come down here to my cubicle and spend some time with me and thank me for my service. Mm. And there's letting people go and there's letting people go. Right. There's a right way to do it. And there's a wrong way. I've got friends that work in New York in the financial industry. Once you're gone, literally an armed security person comes and, and watches you take whatever it is out of your desk, 
your passwords are gone, your laptop is, I mean, they, and they escort you out of the building. They say, well, you know, Brutal. because you're sending Well, you know what that means? You don't trust them. Right. Obviously, they didn't trust you. And by the way, knowing that, that was, that's what's going to happen, you don't think you know you're leaving five or six days before you're leaving? You don't think mm. you've already taken everything you need? Come on. Right, right. Now, if you're an employee uh, looking for someone that's going to fit your organization, I don't think there's a company out there that has had a perfect hire rate where you just know that this person each time is going to be the best employee ever. What are some questions or some strategies that you've seen be effective in terms of hiring the right people? What are you looking for? Yeah, I think you, you you have to look for a cultural fit. You've got to make sure that their values match your values. One of the ways to do that, and I think a great best practice is not just multiple interviews, which I think are good, multiple interviews with people on the team where they're going to work. Do they fit with the team? You know, Adrian and I had an experience where we hired a very talented guy. I mean, lights out, great trainer and, and speaker, delightful. Wasn't a good fit for the team. Hmm. In fact, it got to the point where it was really bad. I mean, he hated the team and the team hated him. <laughs> you know, it was reciprocal. And it took us a long time to extricate that and, and to make it right. And, and the, ultimately, we had to let him go. And we get caught up with, with remarkable talent. Right? Wow, they're so talented. We'll manage around them. No. Take the time. Make sure you've got a good fit. Have them interview with the team. Because a lot of times the team will pick up on things that you don't. And, you know, initially when you make a bad hire, the team knows before you. Mm. Initially, they'll blame the, the hire. The longer it goes on, that transfers to you because you can fix it and you haven't. Mm. And so hiring is really, it, it's, it's, I think it's a lot more art than science. There are things you can do. Let the team interview. We have a wonderful motivators assessment that a lot of companies use. Tell me what your top motivators are. We'll match them up with the motivators on our team. That's a simple test. You know, if you've taken Myers-Briggs or Strength Finders, takes you 20, 25 minutes, spits out your top motivators at work. In fact, you want to have some fun? Yeah, let's do it. If you want to take our motivators assessment, which we sell for 40 bucks all day long, if you email Christy at thecultureworks.com, tell them Chester sent you, <laughs> she'll send you a free motivators code. And it really is interesting because not only is it important to know what the motivators are in your team, it's important for you to know what your motivators are. Mm. Are you recognizing people in the right way? Are you putting them in a position where not only may they be good at it, they're also passionate about it. Mm. And when you start making those connections, I've got a cultural fit. I've got a motivation fit. I've got a passion fit. Your odds of hiring the right person go up. Are you going to be perfect? Nobody's perfect. Mm. Are your odds better? Yeah, your odds are better. So Chester, motivation is very important to you and this meaningful work concept. Uh, it's all about the people. Why is this so meaningful to you? What got you involved? Well, you know, like anybody, the, the longer you live, you've had jobs that were phenomenal and you've had jobs that, you know, it was hard to pry yourself out of bed. And I, 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 I've had both, right? And when you're miserable, you're miserable. And one of the data points in our research that I love to cite is when you're happy and motivated and engaged at work, this was a study done out of the University of California. You're more, you're 150% more likely to be happy, motivated, and engaged in your personal life. I mean, it makes sense, right? We spend so much time at work. Mm. 
that if we come from a miserable situation, we're going to bring that misery home with us. If I come from a great and engaging experience, I'm going to bring that home with me too. So one of the reasons I'm so passionate about it is, is that leading with gratitude and understanding motivators and putting people in a place where they can succeed and feel good about themselves, where they feel safe and they feel listened to, it's not just good for the company. It's good for their families. It's good for their communities. The ripple effect is phenomenal. And I've been in the situation where I came home from work and I was miserable and I made my wife miserable. Mm, and my, yeah, I had my wife, I was in a situation one time we'd go for walks and I'd start to rant and she'd say, okay, stop. Let me make this easy for you. You're leaving. Now, I don't know what we're doing. I'm telling you, we're not doing this anymore because I want my husband back. Mm. So figure it out. You're quitting. Got it? It's like, okay. <laughs> yes. Mary above your station. It's always very helpful. So Chester, how do you find balance uh, in a position like this? How important is balance to you? When you come back home, do you detach? Uh, what are some ways that you're able to do things outside of work to improve your on-work performance? You know, I think balance is is a bad word. Bad I, I don't word. think, well, I do. And, and because, you know, you try to think, well, I've got work like balance. Well, I think, you know, there are times when your life is out of balance. Mm, you know, you got little kids, your life is out of balance. You get a promotion, you get a, a, a huge project, your life is out of balance. I think what you want to strive for is work-life harmony. Mm. And that, that when you can harmonize your personal life and your business life, that's where it gets really good. Now, I'm so glad you brought it up because the last part of the book is live a grateful life. And the leaders that we interviewed, you know, whether it's Alan Mulally or Ken Chenault, who had just left American Express, or Indira Noye, who's the past present CEO of Pepsi, and some of these remarkable leaders, not only did they lead at work with gratitude, they all led with gratitude in their personal lives. It was, it was ridiculously affirming, right? So what we did, what we did is we created a baker's dozen. And what that is is 13 ways for you to live a grateful life at home. And one of them is a very simple practice, although it's hard to do, is when you walk through the door or you finish your commute and your family shows up, be excited to see them. Mm. Like, just be excited to see them. Hey, dad's home. Mom's home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me some space. They, they are just, yeah, I am. How are you doing? Mm. You know, happy to see them. My wife and I have an, uh, a fun little practice. At the end of every day, we say, what are your three? What are three things you're grateful for? It's just a lovely way to end the day. Hmm. And maybe it was just a good meal. Maybe it was caught up with an old friend. You know, the weather was particularly nice today. Did you see the flowers bloom in the garden? Hmm. Right? Wasn't that a nice walk that we took? I found some time to just sit and think. You know, it's such a nice way to end the day. And, and you know, when our kids are around, we do it with our kids. Say, hey, what are your three? We go around the room and everybody laughs. And, uh, um, a dear friend of ours has a best practice at the dinner table with his kids. He says, you know, we would uh, we'd always ask him, how was school? Fine. What did you learn? Nothing. <laughs> right? Of course. He said, okay, we changed it up. He said, um, got to answer three questions. What's the best part of your day? Who are you grateful for that's not at the table? And who are you grateful for who's at the table who hasn't been thanked yet? Mm. Isn't that great? So it changed everything. You got to talk about something really fun in your day, got to talk about one of your friends, and then you got to show appreciation for somebody in your family. Simple little practices like that 
really do help you stay engaged at home. So you don't leave your best self at home or you don't leave your best self at work. You know, you find that harmony of you can take what's good at work and bring it home and take what's good at, at, at home and take it to work. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely. It, it does. And, it, and also, I just want to throw this question out there. For some people, it may not. A lot of people would say, easier for you to say, Chester, you know, you've got a good life. You haven't had to deal with COVID in a way with I haven't had to deal with it. What would you say to those people who are out there? Say it's, you know, I practice gratitude for a couple of weeks and then it goes away because life happens. How, how do you consistently sustain something like that? So every day you just are appreciative. Yeah, I think you've got to set up triggers. You've got to set up little reminders. Hmm. At the end of the day, what am I three? Uh, I've got a question posted on my wall. Am I being the best person I want to be right now? You know, set up little triggers. We had a manager that used to put 10 pennies in his pocket and he'd keep track. He says, my goal was 10 random acts of kindness every day with my people. Hmm. And the way he'd keep track, he'd move a penny from his left pocket to his right pocket. Set up little triggers, set a goal. I'm going to write a, a handwritten note every day. Just one, you know, and, and hold yourself accountable, but make a little spreadsheet. I mean, if you're, you know, green, I did great. Yellow, I, I'm working on it. Red, I blew it. And that's okay. And then you take a deep breath, forgive yourself, move on. Chester, this is kind of a big question, uh, but it pertains to this gratitude and this appreciativeness and maybe kind of why you like doing what you do. Do you think uh, business has a purpose? Your career has a purpose? And uh, if you do, how do you identify someone? Yeah, listen, purpose-driven business, purpose-driven people are always happier people. Because it's something bigger than themselves. You know, pe- people get in, in these bad places and they, the woe is me and look what's happened to me and COVID wasn't my fault and that wasn't my responsibility and yet I'm paying the price. You know what? Get out of yourself. Go serve. Go do something nice for somebody else. You know, we always think about gratitude as uh, well, how great it is for the recipient. Guess what? When you give, you feel great about yourself. Mm. It's the old adage your parents taught you when you were five years old. Better to give than receive. Because when you give, you, you always receive. So set up, set up those triggers. Find your purpose. I mean, that is a big question. Sit back and say, what's really important to me? Mm. A great exercise. If you really want to know what's important to you, keep track of where you spent your time today. Mm. Oh, family's really important to me. Really? You know, you spent three hours on Netflix and you spent 10 minutes with your kids. Right. I were to look at your day, I'd say that Netflix is a lot more important to you than your kids. You know? So... Find that balance. I, I've known guys that have said, look, I, I will not accept a job outside of Chicago. My family's here. My parents are here. They're getting older. I'm going to take care of them. Uh, even if it's a tremendous opportunity, I'm not moving to LA. I'm not moving to New York. Chicago, because the family value is so strong, is that I would rather make less money and have more time for my family. You know, it's really interesting. We had Marshall Goldsmith write the forward to the book. Hmm. He said, you know, in my experience... Um, whether it's a janitor or a billionaire, the one thing we all have in common is this one thing. We all want to be happy. And nothing brings happiness into your life more than expressions of gratitude. Lead deeply with gratitude at work and at home. It, it, it creates this essence of we all matter. We're all going to have tough days and we're all going to need somebody to pick us up. You know, my, my father, again, you know, advice from the grave. The thing I loved about my dad is he treated everybody the same. 
whether they were bagging our groceries, parking our cars, or captains of industry. Because to my dad, everybody mattered. And I'll tell you a quick story. I've, I'll never forget, never forgotten this. So I grew up in Vancouver, British Columbia, one of the most beautiful Great cities place. on the planet. Oh, yeah. Come on, Vancouver. I used to go to Whistler all the time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I lived in West Van, not too far from oh, okay. Whistler and Grouse Mountain. And, Amazing. You know. Anyway, here's the deal. We would get up Saturday mornings. We'd go play tennis. We'd go to McDonald's to get a McMuffin. And then he would often like to go to the Army and Navy. It just closed. They were in business for 108 years. And we'd look for bargains. It was one of those discount places. They'd buy out distressed companies. You get stuff like 10 cents on the dollar. It's kind of in a sketchy area in Gastown. So we parked the car. We're walking. We had to go by Pigeon Park where the homeless people would hang out. We're going across the street. And a homeless lady's coming across the crosswalk with everything she owned in a brown paper sack. And when she got to the curb, it split open and it spilled. Now, it wasn't anything you and I'd want to own. It was everything she owned. And, you know, I mean, Vancouver's a walk-in town, right? Busy. So everybody kind of broke eye contact, gave her a wide berth, kept moving. And that's what I intended on doing. Everybody did that except for my dad. He immediately stopped. He knelt down. He helped her gather up her stuff. He said something that made her laugh. That was my dad. And he got her safely in the park. So he comes back to me. I'm like 14, 15 years old, right? And I said, hey, dad, um, you probably shouldn't touch those people. They're not clean. Mm. And he said something I'll never forget. He said, Chess, you be good to everybody. Everybody's having a tough day. Mm. I like that. And you you think about that as a leader. Right. You be good to everybody. Everybody's having a tough day, whether you're doing a, a Zoom call or, you know, you're, you're still having people come on the assembly line or whatever. You don't know what your employees just came from. You don't know if they're if it's a living hell trying to homeschool. Right. That their Internet's not fast enough. They've got an aging parent that's all of a sudden got a cough and everybody's freaking out. They're having trouble with a kid. You, you don't know. Here's what you do know. The time they spend with you can be the best time of their day. They believe that what they do matters. They've made a difference, that purpose, right? And when they made a difference, you noticed it, you celebrated it, you remembered to say thank you. You can do that. And I promise you that if you lead with more gratitude at work and at home, yeah, you're going to create a great place to work where people want to come work and, and be productively. You know, Ford, American Express, PepsiCo, right? WD-40. There are case studies and the, the, all the information is there in leaving with gratitude available on Amazon, that's the commercial. But I'm, I promise you this, you will live a better life. You'll feel better about the work you do with the people that you work with. It'll ripple into your, into your personal life. It'll ripple into your community. I, I Like literally, there aren't too many guarantees in life. This is a guarantee. You bring more gratitude into your life. Attra- uh, gratitude attracts gratitude. Better way to lead, better way to live. Inspiring story and wise words as well. Now, and I, th- I would hope anyone in any leadership position would understand that as well. If you've ever been in a leadership position, you've you've dealt with people and you've heard stories that are going on at home. And then that starts to uh, be ingrained in you and you start to kind of view the world a little bit differently. Be grateful for kind of what you have. Now, this story is very important to me, not just because the gratitude part, but because it came from your father. Multi-generational leadership. How important is it to learn from others about, you know, uh, wiser than us and younger than us as well? What can we learn from both generations and how important is it to connect that in your culture? 
Are you saying that because you're younger and wiser than I am? I'm is saying no, no, no. I'm saying wiser. The the, the wiser. They're, they're, I, I they're not. They're not the the O word. The yes. There's, there's no question. You are younger. There's no question. You are probably wiser, and you've got great hair. I, I mean, there's there's no doubt. This is the trifecta. Here, here's what's really important: is yes, surround yourself with good people. Absolutely. My grandma had a saying. She said, "You can't live in a sewer and not end up smelling like one." Right. So you can say, hey, look, I'm a good guy just because they're bad guys. Doesn't work. Surround yourself with positive people. So always surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. Always surround yourself with people that are better than you. You know, I my family, we're tennis players. We love to play tennis. If you wanted to get to be a better tennis player, you didn't go play with players you could you could beat. You went and played with players that were better than you. To push yourself. That's why, see, that was the genius in Alan Mulally. He'd say, look you you are not the problem. You have a problem. Let's get everybody figuring out how to solve the problem. WD-40, we're going to make mistakes. What do we learn? You know, it took 40 tries to get that formula. Were there 39 mistakes? Absolutely not. 39 learning opportunities, 39 learning moments. So there's no question that we all have a savior complex. And we'll see somebody's having a tough time. Tough, tough. Well, they're super negative and everything, but I'm the one positive thing in their life. Well, good. If you're going to have that one per- negative person in your life, you better have three or five really positive people in your life to negate that. Mm-hmm. You know, look for good people. Challenge yourself. Smart, creative, funny, you know, compassionate. And again, that that builds a community that's smart, funny, compassionate. You, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Who doesn't want to be a part of that? Find your tribe and make your tribe amazing. It seems to be the common theme in all the companies you're alluding to uh, throughout this podcast. Now, we talked about gratitude, obviously, for most of this. Uh, I wanted to fill you in on a story with someone I interviewed. His name is Jay Shetty. He's a monk. And I just got his book. Oh, you just got his book right there? Hey, I got that. I just got that book on Amazon <laughs> yesterday. Yesterday. So yeah, you already know I, this story then. I'm, I'm 50 pages into it. Okay. I mean, I love it. He says, he says I grew up in an Indian family in London. And I had three choices. I could be a doctor, a lawyer, or a failure. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and, he, and I chose to be a monk. Oh, listen, as, as spectacular as this book is, and it is, highly recommend. In fact, on Friday, I have a book club, and this is the book in my book club. Hey, I'll be on it. I'll be on it if I'm, if I'm invited. I'm reading that book. I just started last night. I just got on Amazon. Now, Jay's, Jay's a great guy. I mean, he, he's a guy when I was just starting out that I asked him if I could go on an interview he made the time, set aside a time, and it was a crazy and incredible experience with him. Now, he talked about in that first chapter, as I'm sure you read, about the ECG scanners on the brains of monks who meditate for a living. How important is self-reflection to you in terms of your gratitude and happiness? You know, it's everything. Uh, I developed a really uh, interesting habit, thanks to my friend Marshall Goldsmith. Um, six questions he says you should ask yourself, you know. Did I set clear and concise goals? Did I work towards those goals? Did I did I uh, try to be happy, or did it? It's did I do my best? Hmm. Did I do my best to be happy? Did I do my best to build a meaningful relationship? Did I do my best to be engaged? Well, the six questions went to twenty three, and at the end of every day, you reflect on what did I do? You know, did I make my wife feel loved and appreciated? Did I make my son feel loved and appreciated? Did I perform a random act of kindness? Did I go out of my way to build up a stranger? 
Did I help build up our training business today? Did I help build our speaking business today? You know, those kinds of things. Did I do my best to speak with God today? You know, and so on and so on and so on. And that accountability and that reflection at the end of the day, of course, it's critical. How do I know if I'm getting better if I don't keep track? And this idea of just taking a moment, and, and I love it with, 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 uh, with, with Jay. I call him Jay because I have his book and now we're tight. You know? Right. Yeah, exactly. It, it, Jay, where he says, you sit down and you just meditate and you bring peace. And it's not about competition. It's not about what I don't have or what someone else has. It's what I can do right now to make myself a better person. And again, you know, talk about surrounding yourself with good people. He talks about the positive and the negative. He says, for every negative person in your life, you have to have at least three good people. Sure. Right? right? And that whole idea that let go of stuff, just let go. Um, I don't know if you've got to this yet. This is I, I, I used this quote the other day. I hope I can find it. Um, and I think it speaks to exactly what you're saying. It's the, it's the chapter on negativity. He says, it's impossible to build one's own happiness on the unhappiness of others. Mm. Yep. <laughs> so how do you express joy and happiness? Expressions of gratitude. And he, he talks about that, about being in a state of, 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 of gratitude. It's remarkable. I love that you got the book. <laughs> well, he's, I mean, I've, I've, I interviewed him like literally when I was just starting out. I think I was in college still. And he just took the time, you know, because he's a really humble person. Like he actually is who he says he is and who, what he preaches. And we had a meaningful conversation just like this and really inspired me as well. Now, one thing that you mentioned in your story with the, you know, the, the lady, the homeless lady who dropped her stuff. You know, when I hear that now, my COVID mind goes, oh, I'm not going to go near that. You know, I fear that people are not going to talk to each other as much or socialize with each other as much or be as friendly as we once were as social beings because of this disease. Do you fear that society is going to change and become less friendly because of this? Well, I think fear is the opposite of happiness. It is. (laughs) I don't think you can be happy and fearful at the same time. You got me. I think you ask me, sure. I think some people will react that way. I have tremendous faith in in people. We'll figure it out. Yeah, we're probably not hugging as much. You know, I, I lived in Italy for a while, but they're not kissing on both cheeks as much. You know, we'll figure it out, though. We are social animals and we will figure out a way to gather. We'll figure out a way to be meaningful. We'll we'll figure out our family pods and we'll we'll get back to hugging and shaking hands and slapping each other on the back. We'll get there eventually. And you know what? When it happens, it's going to be phenomenal. In in the meantime, we'll have to do with uh, FaceTime and video chats and, and, and those kinds of things. You know what, though? Um, I, I, I believe in the innate goodness in people. I really do. I assume positive intent about people. And, you know, as, as Jay says in, in, in the monk world, you, you do that until proven wrong. And even then, forgive and move on. You know, if, if people are really unhappy and they're nasty, you know, that's, that's, that's unfortunate. Do what you can to help and, and move on. You don't have to take on all that negativity. You don't have to take on all those problems. Do what you can to help and move on. And as far as social interactions, I mean, yeah, I, I still love my kids. I still love my neighbors. I still love my brothers and sisters. And I still love the random acts of kindness of the guy who bags my groceries and does it really well. We'll figure it out. We'll move on. We'll figure it out. We're human beings. Uh, we use social tools, right? Right. 
Now, what about innovation, though? Uh, how will we innovate? What does the future of work look like to you, Chesser? I think there's going to be um, a lot more people working from home on a regular basis. You know, USPTO has been doing this for, you know, 20 years. That's the uh, United States uh, Patent and Trademark Office. You know, um, I think 40%, if not more, of their workforce has been working from home. They require them to come in once a month because they want that human contact, keep track of them. Sure. A lot of the stuff they do in patent law and whatnot, you can do from anywhere. And I think companies are figuring out that they don't need 30 floors in a big tower in downtown New York, right? You can have little pods out in the suburbs. Listen, I live, my town is a commuter town to New York and houses here are selling like crazy. Mm. People moving out of the city because even when it gets back to what we're going to call normal, oh, interesting. they're probably not going in five days a week. Right. They're probably not. And you know what? I think that's a good thing. Yeah. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with a mom or dad being able to walk their kids to school. I heard something yeah. about migration being an indicator for, I'm going to go here, like extinction, like climate change, like uh, you know, uncertainty and unrest. Do you think that's going to play a big factor into business leaders in terms of their decisions for what they're going to make on the future of generations? Oh, sure. I mean, I think you've always got to try to see around the corner. Mm. You know, I mean, you, you migrate for a lot of reasons. I mean, I grew up in Canada. You know, um, Southern California is full of snowbirds. That's Canadians that migrate south because it's right. cold. <laughs> you know? I grew up in Oregon. So, I mean, you can migrate for a lot of positive reasons, too. I mean, find a, a, a new work, work-life harmony that we talk about, right? Right. And if the harmony says, look, you only have to come in once a week or twice a month, and I'm getting my work done, and I'm productive, and I'm engaged, and everything's moving forward. Got no problem with that. Chester, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. We've talked a lot about gratitude, appreciation, uh, many examples of businesses that are uh, applying, that, applying that to their organization, their culture, and that's how they're able to sustain and uh, succeed through hard times. Now, that's real to me. Chester, we want to hear from you. What is your definition of a real leader? You know, I, my definition of a real leader is, is basically Ken Taylor, uh, somebody that really cares about his people first, cares deeply about his customers next, and then gives back to his community. You know, that humility that's there where he says, look, I'm just one guy. I can create you know, something bigger than myself. And if I do things right and, and set that example, it gives permission to everybody else to do the same, mm. to care about their people to care about their customers and to care about their communities. So to me, the definition of a great leader, look up Ken Taylor. I love it. Well, just want to appreciate your time coming on the Real Leaders Podcast for Chester Elton. I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, live with gratitude, set the example, folks, and always keep it real. Thanks, Chester. Got it. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this one hour and two minute episode of the Real Leaders Podcast with Chester Elton. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did and folks if you didn't listen to this live all you got to do is go online to reallyers.com slash podcast and rsvp for an upcoming event that works with your schedule from there on out you'll be notified of every single live interview that we have coming up and emails with summaries of these fantastic leaders that you can share with someone in need also I want you to email me questions, email me topics, email me leaders, or if you want to come on the show, 
email us b at real-leaders.com. That's B-E at real-leaders.com. That's it for me. Have a great day and always, folks, keep it real.